that doesn't have to be that you're mounting some massive campaign or trying to mimic or replicate what you might do or gain from spending hours and hours over weeks, months, or years with the same group of people in the same GM in on the same rules to be doing something as a soloist. And this is where I think the the scope of what is considered play in RPG is very different for the soloist and, and really needs to be because I don't think it's possible to get the exact same experience. Hi, welcome to the Daiku Podcast. I'm Gary Snow, and with me is Deborah from Geek Gamers. And Deborah has done some incredible work in the solo gaming industry and has a new book called Solo Game Master's Guidebook, which you can get through Modifius. And we're going to talk all about that. Uh, but first of all, just Deborah, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Gary. I really appreciate it. And uh, you have an incredible YouTube channel. Um, it, you've been looking at games throughout uh, the history of uh, your channel, which is, I think, six years now. It is six years. I can't believe it. It was not not intended to last that long, but it started indeed about six years ago, exactly in April. Well, very uh, interested to learn about that process. But first of all, have you always liked games? When did you get into game, the game world, the game industry in the first place? Well, I always play games as a child. And for the most part, that was, you know, things like Monopoly and Risk and Scrabble, games that were available at that time, the mass market games. And I liked playing them, but I didn't love playing them. And it wasn't until I found myself in a game store in the back of the store in a bin of kind of discarded games, discounted games that were strategy games and actually war games, although I didn't realize it at the time, I bought something called Invasion of the Air Eaters, which was a metagaming game from 1979 that was 295. And this wasn't in 79, it was probably in the mid to late 80s. I bought that and it really opened my mind and opened my eyes to the reason why I always wanted to play games as a child. And I did, but I just never loved them as much as I thought I would because it, I needed to find my way to the kind of games that I do love with a passion, which is, I guess they call them hobby games or games that are not in the mainstream. So yes, games were part of my childhood and I am an only child. And so growing up, I played a lot of those games by myself, including something like Risk, for example, not a solo game at all, but I would just take it out and manipulate the, the sides and try to strategize as best I could. So that was kind of a foreshadowing of things to come. And when did you uh, eventually go, you know what, I actually want to record myself playing a solo game or reviewing a game and just talking about it on YouTube. How did that kind of come to be? Well, that came to be many, many years later. And a couple of years before I posted the first video on the channel, it was, um, I, I'm a parent and my older kid at the time was maybe, I don't know, eight-ish and eight, nine, the age where they start to find things outside of you more interesting than you. And I was trying to kind of hold on to, we played Runebound together and some other things. And I was trying to hold on to her interest and her interest at that point was filming her herself, her hands really doing Cat's Cradle and these types of games, not for YouTube, but just for her friends. And so I said, hey, why don't we make a little video of us talking about this game? 
And we did that. We, we did it on an iPad mini and it sat there probably for about a year or two, just in the iPad. And I came across it at one point and she said, well, why don't you put it on YouTube? And I said, I, I have why, and, and I don't even know how. And at that point she was old enough to do it. So a couple of years later, we posted it. The video's still up. It was on a game called Legions of Darkness, which is in the States of Siege series that Victory Point Games made. I think they're all out of print now, but it was the two of us talking about the game and her little nine-year-old or eight-year-old voice was the other part of it, which is why the channel is called Geek Gamers in the plural, because I had this fantasy that I was going to continue on the channel with her and that the excitement of putting something with her mom up on YouTube would be enough to keep her involved in the channel. And indeed, there's 300 plus videos on the channel and that's the only one she's in. So, so <laughs> you it, can see how that, that planning worked out. As so well it was like a puppy that you got and then you ended up walking the puppy. Precisely. And then what happened after that was I put it on the channel and, or I put it on YouTube. And I remember being at work one day and looking, I kind of, again, forgot about it. And I looked and I saw that I had 35 subscribers. I remember this really well. I had 35 subscribers. Now I have 13,000. But I was like, who are these people? And like, why are they subscribing to me? And how did they even find me? And I just, it sort of took off from there. I was having another child at around that time. And the, I was up at odd hours in the evening. And so the second video I made for the channel was kind of filmed next to a sleeping 18 month old. So there's it's very quiet. It's a very quiet video on a game I love called Struggle for the Galactic Empire, which is a, it's basically, it's a solitaire design war game where you are managing your galactic empire. It's based on the Isaac Asimov Foundation trilogy series of books. And there weren't any videos on it online. And I, so I started to then just go through my game closet and found that my tastes did not align, at least at that point, with videos that were available. So there were just a whole slew of a lot of sort of sci-fi war games that I did initially on the channel and that, that had no videos. And it just really took off from there. I made some connections to game designers and I got some new games in and the channel really began focused on, on war games and strategy games like that and solo play. At one point I did a series on Wargaming 101. So I did a series of videos on how to get into wargaming and what wargaming was, how to understand hexes and counters and combat results tables and things of that nature, because I'm, I'm sort of a teacher by, by nature. And that was one of the more explicitly instructional videos that I did, but it was about gaming. And then, um, then I moved on in the channel. And what was your selection process for uh, choosing the games? Like, did your channel have so many subscribers that eventually game designers or companies were actually sending you games to include? I remember early on, I was writing to, I was writing to places to try to get some newer games in without having to spend the money myself. And yeah, I either got no response or they wrote back and said, you know, you need X thousand subscribers or something, which I definitely did not have. And so I just continued to do what I had in my own closet or maybe made some purchases of games that I wanted to play. But there did come a point at which it became easier to get 
review copies of games. Although I'll say I don't, I don't consider what I do a review. Although early on, I had some concept where some of the earlier videos, I say like, well, these are the components and this is the board. And I really consider what I do a discussion. And that extends to the solo RPG work that I do, which I'm sure we'll get to later. But I consider it more conversational, even if I'm demonstrating gameplay. And the same thing is true of what I did with the the board games. But of course, it is exposure for the games. And and I did start to get copies of games from publishers if I asked, not always, but often. And uh, I do continue to do that because I think it's, um, I come from a book publishing background and the concept of review copies is just sort of baked into my professional experience. So I don't have any concern or problem with taking review copies of things because I know it doesn't impact my my presentation at all. And when you did actually choose games, uh, like before, you know, if the publisher, before they sent it to you, did you kind of have something that you went, you know, these are the types of games that I like, whether it was the board or the the cards or the, the pieces, like what kind of enticed you or what does entice you about like more of a specifically board games? That's a really great question. We're looking at the, my background here. This is a, this is from AlterQuest, and I think it's just a beautiful map for the game. I'm going to say aesthetics on some level, because there are definitely some games out there that I'm sure mechanically or maybe even thematically I would like, but that to me, they just don't look aesthetically pleasing. And so it's hard for me to be interested in them because I'm spending so much time. We're spending so much time just staring at, at the stuff. So it sounds like perhaps a superficial answer, but on some level, I know that plays a role in what draws me to something. And certainly theme is important as well. I find that I'm drawn to certain types of themes and some of them are pretty generic, like the dungeon crawl. Who doesn't love a good dungeon crawl? I, I do. But some unique themes, like there was a, a game I did called Crisis. It's a worker placement game I, I did on the channel, I should say. And I found that fascinating that uh, somebody chose to make a game about economic crises and it was at the kind of nation state level. And that was not my typical mechanic. I don't typically do worker placement. I don't think that works very well solo. And this did have a solo kind of bot that you could play against, but the theme really drew me to that. So games that are unique in that regard, or when I first played, I think it's called, um, Obsession, is that the one about the running the manor house? I can't remember the name of the title. I did a video on it, but about running a manor house in essentially Victorian England, another worker placement, but thematically I was drawn to that. So theme and aesthetics, I would say, draw me in. The mechanics, I am I have a much wider acceptance level, I would say, of mechanics that if I'm not really wedded to a particular type of mechanic or I say work replacement, I think is difficult to do solo. It doesn't mean I won't play that type of game. For example, I used to not love deck builders, but if the theme and the design can overcome that, it, it I can be really pretty flexible on the mechanics end of things. Before we transition into like, you know, the heart of kind of the questions I have about uh, tabletop role-playing games, 
maybe this is a good time to just talk about the idea of like solo gaming in general. And what do you think uh, the appeal of it is for you? You mentioned when you're young that you played a lot of games solo. What, how, what type of person really likes solo games or what, what could that work for, for that type of person? I can, I don't know, generally speaking, I can say for myself, it is something just figuring out a puzzle that the games that I tend to enjoy tend to be the more complicated ones. I like being presented with a series of problems in gaming format and trying to figure out with constraints how to solve those problems. So essentially any type of game can fall into that, whether the problem is getting through the dungeon to kill the boss or the problem is, I don't love victory point based games, but it could be that or a combination of something where you're trying to amass a certain type of resources to survive, say, an Arctic winter or whatever. So for me, the playing a game solo and just kind of laying everything out and having the luxury of just sitting there and thinking through a turn and thinking through options, I find that enjoyable. I can see where other people find it somewhat onerous, but I find that enjoyable. Or something that is some types of games I love from Frying Frog, like Frying Flying Frog, like Fortune and Glory or Touch of Evil, very thematic to what they are talking about. I can really get involved in the worlds that they create and throwing some dice to try to hope that my luck is good because those are pretty luck-based types of games. I don't mind that at all. I think that's enjoyable and the frustration in fact i did a video called it was something like because it i was playing uh eldritch horror by myself and that just the most frustrating thing happened i can't remember what it is right now but it was basically a, just a bad die roll and i had set everything up perfectly with every all my players that i was running and then the, the die roll just ruined it but it was great because it really i just i had i had fun you know i was frustrated, but I was really involved in it. And I made a short video talking about that and talking about the role of luck in games, because I think that luck, luck gets a bad rap sometimes, especially from gamers who are used to a high level of mechanical um, overlay, let's say, in the game, lots of rules and exceptions and things that you need to do. And then, you know, you roll a D6 and you get a three when you needed a four or whatever. And it can feel unfair and it can feel like a cheap for lack of a better word. But if luck is baked into the game in the right kind of way, and I think it is in a game like, for example, Eldritch Horror, it's, it's just more of the gameplay. And it was, um, it was really memorable and um, just epitomizes some of the enjoyment I think that can be, that can be had from gaming. And when did you uh, get into more of the solo, like, tabletop role-playing games versus the Euro game or board game area. And did you ever play uh, tabletop role-playing games when you were younger or was this a new discovery? Well, that's a great question. I was very interested in Dungeons and Dragons as a kid, but as a girl at the time when I was growing up, it was very challenging to, well, first of all, pre-internet, it was hard to know who was even playing anything. And then when I got to a place in college where people were playing things, I went right at the beginning of college, I found the D&D group and I went there. And I'll just say that I probably stayed about 10 minutes because the guys there, and it was all guys, just really weren't that 
welcoming or I didn't feel that welcome. And so it wasn't, it wasn't so easy for a young woman many decades ago to get, at least for me, to find a group that felt good. So my tabletop role-playing experience was pretty limited, but I was always interested in it. And I also like to read a lot and I would buy and read RPG rule sets and I would start to maybe say make a character and then try to give the character something to do or play out a combat or something like that and start to modify the stats of the monster to work out, you know, because I'd have one character say instead of a party of four or whatever. So I always was manipulating the rule sets in that way. In terms of the channel itself, it happened actually as a result of the board games that I was covering. I did a video on one of my all-time favorite games that I have had since it came out in 1986 called the James Bond Assault Game. And that's a board game, but it is, in the rules, it tells you it can be played with, it doesn't really tell you how, but it says it can be played with the James Bond 007 role-playing game. So in my video on my channel, I sort of figured out a way to do that. I, I demonstrated how one might do that. And that was really the first, so that was about five years ago that I posted that video in 2017. That was the first video I posted where I kind of explicitly brought board games and RPGs together. And then after that, I did a whole short series on something that I had played around with a lot as a kid, which was the fantasy trip. And I called the series, it was like a series of something like a solo RPG tutorial series or something like that, where I was showing how I was creating a story and I was sort of doing what I tend to do naturally, which is to explain the bigger picture concepts. So it was not just me sitting down and rolling dice and playing something out, but talking through the decisions I was making and some of the larger concepts that I was involving, I was the narrative concepts I was using. And that then turned into, I made a video called Easy Ways to Be Your Own GM for Solo RPG. And that's my most popular video at this point on the channel. And that is where I outlined the four categories of resources that I think any successful solo RPG session needs to have. And I defined them as generative, restrictive, suggestive, and a rubric. And we can talk about those if you want or not, but I put that in the video and a lot of people watched it and continue to watch it. And then I started to see all of a sudden it was popping up on other channels, these terms and people were sort of using this framework when they were starting to do solo RPG videos. Those began to proliferate a few years later, I think with the pandemic at the beginning of the pandemic, although I had been, I had been doing this really since 2017, since I first posted those. And there just seemed to be so much interest in it. And there was really nothing out there that I saw. And also it gave me a chance, my own background is I have a great deal of interest in narrative. I'm a book editor by profession. I have a PhD in literature as well. And it was like, it was just a perfect mixture because I could use my understanding and my study of narrative to bring it to this realm and to give people tools to play RPG solo. 
do you think you actually uh, benefited that you didn't grow up playing, uh, you know, Dungeons and Dragons or other role playing games that you could come at it with fresh eyes to kind of see like, hey, if I'm going to do solo GMing or solo gaming, this is the way I do it, especially with your background in like narrative storytelling um, in your day job. Do you think that kind of just was like the perfect entry point for you? I think that's a great question. And I ha actually haven't been asked that or really thought about it before. I think you could be right because part of what I talk about on my channel and in my solo GM guide is that the mindset of the solo GM is very different in my opinion than the mindset of a regular GM. And indeed the mindset of the solo player should be very different in order to maximize enjoyment. And I think you're, you're probably right because I didn't go in with a whole set of experiences. I had some, I mean, I played, I, I played a very limited number of traditional tabletop sessions, but I didn't go in with a whole history or years of play. So I didn't have to overcome that. I really was approaching it very differently. And I was approaching it from the ways that I had spent time when I was younger, just reading these rule sets and, and looking at the rule sets as books and as, kind of potential, you know, the narrative potential for them. So I, I think that's a great point you're making in the question. And I'm going to say, yes, I think you're right. And you just talked about, you know, again, the reading a rule set and it's so common. I've heard it time and time again from lots of like tabletop role-playing game fans that they'll get a book and never gets to the table, but something fulfills in them reading the rule set, reading the world, the world building part of it. And and I know in your book, you mentioned that that is actually playing. And maybe you can just elaborate on that. Absolutely. In the, I list 10 mindsets for the solo GM. I think that's probably mindset number one, which is everything is playing. Meaning if you do buy a, a rule set and read it, that's, you can say that's solo RPG. You're experiencing a, an RPG rule set on your own. You're thinking about what it means and you're thinking about a world that is playing or i give an example in the book if you take say a rule set like traveler which is just massive and you use the rules to simply create a spaceship and put create a character and put the character in the spaceship you're playing traveler it doesn't have to be that you're mounting some massive campaign or trying to mimic or replicate what you might do or gain from spending hours and hours over weeks, months, or years with the same group of people in the same GM in on the same rules to be doing something as a soloist. And this is where I think the, the scope of what is considered play in RPG is very different for the soloist and, and really needs to be because I don't think it's possible to get the exact same experience. And indeed, I think if it's your goal to get the same experience as a soloist, as you might with friends around the table, you will be disappointed. I personally don't really think that's possible. I think there are some shared experiences or some shared feelings that you can get, but it is a very different experience, just as it's a different experience going to say, see live theater versus reading a book. Even if you're seeing theater based on the book, it's just a different experience. And this might be a good time, if you don't mind, uh, going through the 10 mindsets. So the first one, uh, you said everything is playing. 
uh, number two, and maybe if I can just read them and then maybe give us a comment. Please, I please want... do read them because I don't remember <laughs> all of them. And I don't, I don't want to give away everything because I want people to buy your book, but uh, at least at a high level, uh, number two would be, uh, but you don't need everything. Well, I think being a solo soloist in the RPG world, it's very important to know when to edit, to know how to edit, and to feel okay about editing. And I'll just give you just one example. And this happens on the channel a lot. And I talk about some more examples in the book, which is I don't use necessarily encumbrance rules, for example. So I don't want to be basically manipulating a spreadsheet and, you know, do I have enough strength to carry this thing or whatever. But in some cases, for some rule sets, it's important to have a specific inventory management. So perhaps that boils down to managing slots or whatever. It's important to understand what you want to get out of a rule set, what you want to get out of a session, and feel free to edit and just lose things that really aren't serving you. Or if you're doing something in sci-fi, for example, and you have a scene that you're playing out on a planet and then some other planet looks good, well, miraculously, there you are in the new planet. That's fine. So that is, you don't need everything. Yes. Okay. Uh, number three, don't forget the G and RPG. I talk about in terms of the, the four resources that are needed, the, I called one suggestive resources. And by those, I meant things that are pre-existing in a game world, such as game pieces. And I'm pointing to this table here, for example, that role-playing games are games and that there are things from games like physical components that you can use to help you or concepts in games, such as a sequence of play, that if you were sitting around a table with a GM and players and the GM said like, okay, well now, you know, now we're going to do this. And now we're in the sequence of play this, that would seem strange. And it would seem antithetical to the way that kind of role-playing works for the soloist. However, I think something like that can prove useful because it, it will advance your story and it will keep you moving in the right direction, which is to say some direction, any direction. So I have other things I talk about in the book, but that's what I mean by that, that it is a game and that you can use some of the fabric of what games offer to help as scaffolding and structure for your own solo sessions. Okay, number uh, four, words, not dice rolling, will get you through narrative transitions. So this is a huge topic, and I'll just touch on it to say that when we are playing solo, it is often the case that if we're not sure what to do, we might just reach for the die and say, well, we rolled even, so it's yes. The problem with doing that is that that yes is detached from your story. And yes, and then what? Okay, you're kind of left with still the same place you were before you rolled that die. So I offer in the book a lot of strategies and suggestions for doing other things to get through a narrative transition, things that involve language instead of die rolling, because I think that's more effective in moving stories forward when you don't have the external help of a GM. And that links nicely to number five, which is what happens next is the only essential question. 
Indeed. And that is what it boils down to, that the most common question I get on the channel across all my videos or to my email is, why do I get stuck? Why do I, you know, what do I do when I get stuck? And the point I'm making in what happens next is the only question is I want to offer, and I try to do this on the channel, I try to do this on the book, bigger picture strategies so that you're never getting to a place of being stuck. If you always have something to wonder about, if you always have something kind of hanging out there that's unresolved in some way, that is the natural next place to go to try to answer that question or to find that thing. So if you think about it as always having that in mind, like what happens next, as long as you feel like you want to know what happens next, your session is not going to die out. And then the next one, I'm going to elaborate on this. So uh, it's number six and play emotion, not mechanics. And then a follow-up to that is as you've been playing and that with that whole idea of playing emotion and not mechanics, have you ever kind of been so emotionally moved as you've been playing? Like what, what's the threshold? Because I know a lot of people or I've seen comments saying you make it look so easy. And, uh, and I've seen some also some parallels, you know, talking about music and a musician. And I think of it like my own, when I was reading that, I thought of you like a jazz musician that you're able to kind of go on the fly and like work with other people and the mechanics and just make things work for you. And with that said, like the emotional part of it, like how, how invested have you gotten in any of the games that you've done? Well, thank you for that. I appreciate it. I've received those comments too, and they're really humbling. I think what I mean by play emotion, not uh, mechanics, is that a feeling is always easier to elaborate on than, say, a number or a rule. And so in a sense, and it doesn't necessarily have to be like, a, say, even a sad feeling. When, we were, when you brought this up, I immediately was thinking of the, one of the sessions I remember the most, and it's on the channel, I was doing Warhammer quest role play system, which was something that was from the, I think it's from the eighties, maybe early nineties. And in that session, the characters, there was like a pit and one of the, I was playing four characters. I don't often do that. I think I had four characters and one of them fell into the pit and the other one tried to get him. Basically they all ended up falling into this pit. And it was just really funny after a while. It happened just naturally as I was playing it out on camera for the video. But the that's a game that's memorable or a session that's memorable to me because it was funny. You know, it's like an, I, emo, I remember that emotion of just laughter. Like, I can't believe this is happening. And that's one of, I think, by the way, one of the hardest things to achieve with solo RPG is something that feels humorous for a variety of reasons. But the, so that is one that is one thing that is important to think about and to rely on feelings are just so rich that it's almost like a crutch that's, that's invisible to rely on feelings. And a very good strategy for doing this is to create, say, two or three characters who are related to each other by a feeling. And for example, this is a book I uh, published that is, it's on Amazon. You can get it. It's a, it's a Gothic roll and read table that has excerpts from novels in it. And it's like, I'm, you know, if you, if you 
randomize something from a character and give, put them into a story. This is just full of emotion. I mean, the, the, the brilliant writers who were creating these pieces of literature in the 1700s and the 1800s, they were all writing about emotion. Everything was emotional. So it's almost like a cheat, but you can take something from here or, or any other source and give it to, you know, let your character be, let that be their backstory. So for example, you have a wizard, okay, or you have an old wizard who has been cast out of his magical society and is on the decline and desperate for one last whatever. That's a story. That is the beginning of some kind of a story that's in the end much easier, I think, to play out than just a wizard with, you know, plus two, minus four, whatever. And though, and so just mentioning that, probably maybe I'll combine number seven and eight because I think you kind of answer that there. Stats are not story and numbers are not narrative. And then number eight would be history is your friend. Yeah, so stats are not story and numbers are not narrative. That's really what I was getting to. And in fact, in a future video, I'm going to be talking about specifically character creation for the soloist and showing how it can be, how it's important to develop characters in ways that don't rely so heavily on the stats. Because again, in the end, these numbers, to me, the numbers do not generate story. The numbers do not make you wanna know what happens next. They can function to, to do certain things with a rule set or reveal certain things on a random table or whatever. But at the end of the day, for me, relying too heavily on the die rolling does not, it doesn't help. and it doesn't advance things. The history being your friend, I think one of the points that I make about this too is that having characters with the past, having them say, have that past be exemplified with a little trinket that they might be holding and just develop a little bit of a story about why do they have this trinket, that is something that gives you some narrative toeholds, maybe not for then, but maybe for later on in the session or something to go back to. If we think about ourselves as people in our lives, we're filled with the experiences that we've had with the past. That's actually all we have, right? We only have what we have just done and what we did before. So giving your characters to the extent that you possibly can, that same kind of thing makes them be more quote unquote real, meaning more three-dimensional and more able to exist within a story and to have that story feel like it is naturally evolving. And I can't help but kind of notice, and I know that you've gravitated towards um, maybe OSR games when you've been doing a lot of the solo uh, GMing and with the OSR, I mean, one of the things is like, you know, die rolls, very similarly are not what drives your story it's like the decisions and the history and those trinkets and you know like a, a game like into the odd where like that failed careers and like the items you have are mm -hmm. what really define your character more than your stats and did you kind of as you went through it starting at you know the big one saying dungeons and dragons did you see osr games as a natural fit for solo gming 
I think they really are. I think they tend to be rules lighter, mechanics lighter, as you say, more narrative folk, narrative first. And they think there's a feeling that they are at least, I've never really quantified this, but there's more a feeling of like isolationism in them. And what I mean by that is because there's not the whole massive history of say a Dungeons and Dragons or even Pathfinder, that they're more of themselves, even if they have many supplements and their own lore, like something like Morkborg has now, for example, it's more individualistic. And I think that notion of individualism, obviously, for the solo RPG or is just something that feels like it's a good fit, even if you're playing multiple characters. But so for a whole host of reasons, yes, I've done a bunch. I love Nave by Ben Milton and Into the Odd, as you mentioned, is one that works really well for solo. I did something called Rogueland. That's another um, OSR game by Caverns of Heresy that I loved. They do work really well, I think, for solo. And I just did a video on Cairn. That was great. Yes. And then finally, number 10, uh, similarities and differences yield themes. I... I think it's important to note that sometimes you're, you are rolling dice, of course. And like you keep, say you're rolling a random table and it's got 20 entries. And for whatever reason, you keep, you know, getting on entry 16 or you you're on one random table and you roll something about a, a witch or whatever. And then you go to a totally different kind of table and you roll something that seems similar. I think that that needs to suggest then a larger theme as opposed to like keep rolling to get something different. I think that sometimes soloists fall into the trap of trying to get the dice to give them something that they feel will work because they don't actually have enough of their own narrative to stand on to start with. So that point is simply that if you are finding something that comes up that seems similar, maybe make that a larger theme. And it could be a larger theme where it takes your session in a whole different direction even. But again, if we think of solo RPG sessions in some manner as something akin to just living narrative or narrative that is being generated on the fly with the help of some RPG mechanics, like a novel, there's going to be themes in it. And how do I get those themes? Well, look at some of the similarities that you come up with, maybe with your die rolls to get those themes. How do you like uh, the difference between like, say, you know, some of the items that we've discussed that strategy, you know, there's a little bit of dice play, but what about the difference between that and like, say, like journaling or like letter writing solo GMs? Do you uh, like those or do you gravitate towards a little bit more of the Oracle with the dice involved? I tend to not really do too many journaling games I, for a variety of reasons. I, I, I just it's not my preferred way of playing solo. However, I've done a bunch of uh, games on the channel that are really awesome. Like Thousand Year Old Vampire is amazing. I love that game. I did a game called Artifact, which is, your, it's a journaling game where you're essentially creating an artifact and 
writing up uh, its history. And you can even take that artifact that you create, of course, and then give it to a character in another total different rule set, which would be was something I planned to do and never did. So I think there are some excellent, um, there are a bunch of excellent journaling games, very creative writing exercises out there. It's not really for me. It's not, I do it for the channel sometimes because I know people are interested and I've been asked about them. And the ones that I've done, I think are excellent, but it's not something I would naturally uh, go toward because if I want to do creative writing, I would just do it in another sort of in another context. But that is, that is absolutely a, a thriving area of the solo RPG world. There's um, another one called A Quiet Year that mm -hmm. I did on the channel that I really enjoyed too, where it's just, it's almost like a meditation. You have these cards and you're, they're prompts, essentially writing prompts, basically. Yeah. And you are, um, at the end of the, the session, you've, you've created a whole year of time passing. It's, it's incredibly creative. It really is. And then the uh, at the end of it, you have a map of your own community uh, of that mm -hmm. one. And uh, it often, like I've heard of people framing it and putting it up on walls, and it's like a memory, right? An artifact. Yeah, for sure. Um, I could see that. They're they're, you know, the ones that I the ones that I mentioned in particular, I have I have really enjoyed those, and the 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 designers on all of them were just extremely unique um, game creations. And so we just finished off like the 10 mindsets of solo GMs. And I guess now would maybe be a good time before we get into maybe the end piece of like your framework of the rubric, et cetera. But when you were developing those 10 uh, mindsets did, and putting them in the book, how did the book come to be? And did you kind of sit down and, and think about the mindsets prior to the book or, or did you actually, as you were writing the book, develop those mindsets? Great question. I, the book came to be because when the pandemic started, I, like so many other people, I was extremely upset. And when I get upset, I don't sleep well. And I was up really early. I mean, really, really early. Like I was up at three, four in the morning. And I was just thinking a lot for a while. It was hard for me to, I, I didn't even do videos for a while. It was just hard to do that. But when I kind of got back to doing it, I was thinking a lot about what gave me solace in the gaming. And it sort of evolved from there. It was that, and then it was a combination of, I, I heard a lot of, or not a lot, but some other YouTubers using some of the language that I had put on my channel to describe what they were doing. And I thought to myself, it was great, but I also thought to myself, you know, I should really kind of write this down in a way that not only expresses it the, the exact way that I want it expressed, but also makes it available in written form to people. So that's how it started. The mindsets I had actually done. So I did the, I did the easy ways to be your own GM video. And I, then I started to write the book. I, list, I listened to my own material, basically. I woke up in the morning and I listened to a bunch of my videos and I had those four resources. And then I did do a video called the mindset of the solo GM. I think in that video, I only had four of them. Maybe it's the first four of the 10. I can't really recall, but it came, it sort of came organically out of that because I realized, well, there's more than just four. And in the process of going back and listening to basically all of my own work on 
the solo sessions, I took notes and I took notes about the bigger points that I was making. And I took notes when in a video, I would say, well, that's a whole other, that's a bigger topic that I don't have time to talk about here in this video. And that's how I came up with the structure, the content of the book. It was really based on what I was unable to say in on the channel and also reemphasizing things I said on the channel, just in a much more uh, thought out way, obviously in written form. And did you have somebody at Modifius contact you and go, Hey, we really love your channel. We'd love to do something on solo gaming. No, it was the other way around. Mm -hmm. I actually contacted them. I saw that they were doing, um, I can't remember. There was something on their website where they kind of, there was some indication that they were having a category of publishing that was kind of more general gaming. And I didn't see any books in that category. So I just wrote to them and said, you know, hey, I have this thing. And they were really excited about it. And that's that's how that came to be. And it's been great working with them because the, a book like this really does need a type of RPG art that I was unable to produce myself. And they provided all that and designed it and really made it look like uh, a, a game master's guide, which it is. It's just the solo game master's guide. So it's been it's been a great experience working with them in that regard. But um, no, I reached out to them. And how long did it take to actually put it all together? The I don't. That's a great question. And the manuscript probably. I don't really remember how long it took me. I wrote it and revised it. And then when they had it, there were some changes that were made along the way. Not significant, but it was, it was a year or so maybe it was, but then it took me a while, honestly, to find a publisher for it. It took me a while to connect with them. It took a while as the pandemic was going on or obviously still is, but this was pandemic times and they were trying to deal with their own publishing and supply issues and, trying to work with me to slot it in and stuff like that. So the whole process has taken a couple of years, but it probably took me maybe nine-ish months to write it. And then I revised it and then um, it's been in production and things of that nature, I think. Okay. Um, and maybe, you know, I get, we're getting close to the end of our time together, um, but I really did want to maybe talk about your framework, which has kind of four bigger areas of rubric, generative, suggestive, and restrictive. And, and if you don't mind, maybe we can go through it similarly one by one and just talk about those. Sure. Of course. Absolutely. Okay. Uh, so, so rubric. Like yeah, the rubric. So rubric is really just another way of saying the rules, but a rubric is more like a framework. It's a set of guidelines. And I like the word rubric for that reason, because the rules, I mean, Gary Gygax said this and others have said it, of course, but that the rules are really just a guide and you have to make this game your own. And I'm sure I have an epigraph in my solo game master's guide from Gygax saying this basically that you, you know, you buy that game, you, it's your game, you make it your own. So that's why I call it a rubric instead of rules, because I do think that Sometimes people get all caught up in the rule as opposed to the framework and like, what is that rule really meant to enable? And then generative. So a generative resource is 
as the word generate suggests, something that's going to just give you something. And the basic example of that is just a random table. So it just generates something. And in this case, it would be you do a die roll and it generates a magic item or it generates a dungeon room or you know it generates the weather or whatever. So a generative resource, the most common type of that would be random tables. Okay, uh, suggestive. Suggestive resources are a little bit different than generative, and I get a lot of questions about this distinction because to make a suggestion, if you think about making a suggestion, you're, you're saying something specific. I suggest that you do blah, blah, blah. A suggestive resource is something that is specific. So this, for example, that we're looking at here would be a suggestive resource. It's suggesting a certain type of dungeon and a feel. Game pieces are my favorite ones, and I often recommend to people trying to start out in solo, if they are gamers, to go to their game closet and find a game that they really like and know well, that has a lot of different components, take those components out and just look through them. Like, do you have magic cards and magic items? And maybe take a couple of those and say that you are making a character that has those things. You know what they look like. There's a little description there. That's taking the suggestion, basically taking someone else's creative work and putting it into your game. So a suggestive resource is going to give you something very specific where a generative resource is just gonna simply like throw stuff out at you. It's just gonna generate something. And then finally, restrictive. Restrictive to some people seems counterintuitive because restrictive to me is are the oracles, the yes, no tables, the tables that give a sense of direction or something. Many people would say, well, why is that restrictive? Because that's open-ended. But again, this is where I think my perspective is perhaps different than, than some people's. I find those, the yes, no answer, rolling on Oracle tables, using something like the fate system or mythic, which people is very popular. To me, that really is restrictive. It, rest it puts you in a specific kind of direction. Sometimes I feel it doesn't allow the narrative to develop organically enough for me, for my type of play. So I call those restrictive. Nevertheless, all these components put together, a random table, a rule set, something like a game piece or something that's suggestive to you, as well as like a yes, no table or an oracle. You put all those things together and you have the four kinds of resources necessary for solo sessions. And then um, one of the other interesting things that I kind of noted in your book is that start without without creating a character, which I find very interesting because it's counterintuitive to most games. A hundred percent. I'd say if I give one piece of advice, it is that because think about it. If you have a couple of characters, you sit down with a rule set. The character creation is often extremely linear and mapped out. It's great. Everything's going well. Point one, sometimes it's even numbered. You do this, then you do this. Well, I made a wizard. Awesome. Well, now what? You know, your wizard like has nothing to do. Whereas if you spent time creating an environment, let's say you created the environment of a, a library and it was a magical library and then you rolled on some tables and in part of the magical library, there was an area where there was something, a, a, a broken bookshelf, and that led to a portal to another world. You put a wizard in there, all of a sudden, the wizard's got stuff to do. He could find a book to fix the hole. He could go in the hole. 
He could investigate who made the hole. I don't know. So the point is, starting with an environment gives you literally a place for the characters that you make to be. And when you make an environment, you're creating three-dimensionality. And in three-dimensionality, there's going to be stuff to do. There's going to be things that are started to be developed and left undeveloped. Where does the dungeon go? Why is the tower so high? Whatever. And if you put characters there, it's just a little bit of something getting back to that question of what happens next. What's going to happen with that? The hole in the wall there of the wizard study. Maybe something's going to come through it to talk to the wizard. I don't know. But that's the beginning of a story. So starting with environment is vital, I think, to getting off on the right foot for a solo session. And then, uh, you know, closing out uh, finally, I know a lot of my audience are game designers. Uh, they really appreciate advice from, you know, people, uh, guests and that I have on here. And I know you've talked about Scarlet Heroes, Kevin Crawford's uh, game and Iron Sworn. And, you know, you've mentioned a few other like, others like Karen and Into the Odd. What advice do you have for people that go, you know what, I, I'd like to design a game that could be played solo? Or do you suggest actually making a solo game by itself before making a group game? I think it's probably harder to make a solo game because probably most game designers, I'm going to guess, are traditional RPGers, which would mean not soloists. I think a couple of things. One is tables like those, say, for example, in Nave, tables that uh, build on each other. So you roll on one thing and then you connect it to something else, another point of the table, and you connect it to something else to create a type of magic item or whatever. Those are kind of narrative random tables. That's for, I mean, that's useful for, I guess those are useful for a GM, but it certainly is useful for a soloist. The other thing I would say, I always point this out when I'm going to do a video on the channel for a non-solo game book, when there's a whole bunch of things in a book, whatever it might be, that are unnumbered, it's just a bummer for the soloist because it would be not take that much away from the design to just give things a number and sort of make them into say 36 entries. So it would be a D60, it could be a D66 table or it, you know, 20 entries and, and number them. So you could roll a D20 on it if you wanted to. And I never understand why not everything is numbered that way, because just doing that without changing any content at all would make it so much more inviting to the soloist. And I'll go in and I'll, I'll number things myself and count them off in the video or whatever, but it, it just like as an apparatus for the soloist, it's a very minor point, but um, it would be appreciated. <laughs> it would be appreciated. I think it would be a gesture toward the fact that maybe maybe soloists are reading the material. But I don't have any advice, any design advice per se, except I do think, and I talk about this, I have a whole chapter in my solo GM guide about random tables and, and sort of what makes a good random table. I think having a Having a random table that invites narrative discussion and thought is always useful. I think it would be useful for traditional players as well as soloists. And I guess in closing now, when you reflect back upon six years ago and that first video, and now you've got like a channel with many subscribers, you've now got a book talking about solo gaming and 
did you ever in a million years imagine this was going to happen? No, I definitely did not. I definitely did not. And I am surprised, honestly, that it is still, it is still going on and that there's just, I'm not surprised at the interest. It makes sense to me because I realized that it was just kind of a new area. And I think when I started doing these videos and the way in which I was talking about these concepts sort of in the broader realm, as opposed to just like sitting down and rolling a whole bunch of dice and making notes and, and having combat, that that was really welcomed by viewers to sort of step back and understand the bigger picture. So I guess I'm not surprised that there's the interest. I'm surprised. It's just, you know, it's life. I mean, it's a lucky thing. I, I enjoyed writing that book. It felt very natural to do. And, um, you know, who knows, uh, who knows what's next, but it, it's been, it's been a great ride. And I, I love hearing from viewers that I am helping them experience gaming in a new way, because in the end, that's really why I'm doing the channel. Well, that's great. And uh, I just want to say, you know, uh, thank you for joining me today. I'm going to put all the links to the where that you can buy the book. And obviously, you have way more subscribers than I do. So that's probably not a problem getting more. But if I can send some of your way, that's great. But uh, always appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> but I just want to say, uh, you know, thank you very much for joining me today and sharing uh, your wisdom and a little bit more about your background. It's been my pleasure. Thank you for the invitation. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much.